Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together again. And we'll see what the technology gets up to this week. I think we actually would probably be better without it, wouldn't we? Um, it can't go wrong if you haven't got it. Anyway, our call to worship this morning comes from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. When it was evening, <coughs> excuse me, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Our opening hymn of praise this morning is on the sheets. It will also appear on the screen behind me, provided the technology behaves. Uh, Come living God when least expected. I think you'll know the tune even if the words are unfamiliar. And you're invited, if you're able, to stand as we sing.
we come now to God in our prayers of approach, and at the end of those, we are invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer. And as is our custom, we say that in whichever version is most familiar and in our own first languages. So let's come together in prayer to God. Let's pray. Living God, we come into your presence expectingly, or at least thinking that we know what to expect, because we have been here or somewhere similar many times before. We come bringing with us the experiences of the past week, each with our own unique blend of emotions and thoughts and physical feelings. We come seeking something from you, even if we're not quite sure what it is that we seek. Perhaps it's acceptance, forgiveness, refreshment, encouragement, healing, wholeness, or something that no one not even we, can quite put a finger on and name. So we also come seeking the unexpected, the surprise of your touch on our lives, perhaps in a smile that's shared, or music heard, in a song that is sung, or in bread that is broken in the meeting of eyes or the touch of a hand or indeed in something that no one, not even we, can quite put a finger on or name. We come as seekers after you. We come as followers after Christ, the one in whom you shared our frail, finite experience and through whom You gave us an enduring pattern for our own prayers, which we join together as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, Thank you. 
I wonder how everybody's feeling today after all the excitement of last week uh, with all the colour and celebration of Easter. Perhaps we had Easter eggs, uh, some hard-boiled decorated ones or chocolate ones or wooden ones or all sorts of ones. I wonder how you're feeling today. Does it all feel a bit flat? A bit like all the fun's gone and you're back at work and you're back at school or you're back to doing your home ed and it's just like a bit meh? Or are you all still happy? Or are you all actually asleep because you're kind of not responding to me today? Well, today is called Low Sunday in the church calendar because it can be a bit of a flat day. After all the excitement of Easter, it can all feel a bit flat. I wonder if you were listening to what we heard from the the Gospel of John as we came in this morning, uh, started this morning, and Jesus did something, because I think his friends were feeling a bit flat. I have a feeling his friends were a bit like this. Flat and empty like a balloon that needs to be blown up. And what Jesus did, it tells us in John, other people tell us it didn't happen for a while later, maybe it happened twice, who knows, it doesn't really matter, is Jesus breathed on his friends. Not sure if he went up to him and went at them, that would be a bit scary, wouldn't it? Or whether we just kind of smiled at them and encouraged them. But it was a bit like the balloon being blown up. These don't blow up very big, so I'm not going to go any further and risk bursting it. Because you can guarantee that the microphone will pick that up, if nothing else. But once they've been kind of blown up like the balloon, they're a bit more cheerful again, and a bit more encouraged. So I have got some balloons um, for young people and not-so-young people. Anybody want to come and get a balloon? No? Okay, I'm going to have to just bat them out into the congregation then. See, it's definitely flat Sunday, isn't it? Everybody's a bit weary, so throw balloons at you. Whatever colour you fancy, have a balloon. Everybody's ducking, you see. You're all scared of my balloons. Okay, last bag full coming out. So we can have some balloons to kind of remind us that the Easter story and the hope that it brings us, goes on. I'll take the balloons off the communion table now, because that probably kind of spoils the appearance. But I guess it reminds us that sometimes life can be good, and sometimes life can be a bit flat. And somehow Jesus is part of all of that. Um, I've just got a couple of things I, I need to do. Apparently last week some people didn't get a wooden Easter egg. I had six dozen wooden Easter eggs, and there weren't six dozen people here last week, but some people didn't. So if you didn't get a wooden Easter egg last week because you weren't here or we ran out, I have two dozen bunny rabbits, and I'm going to start them at this end, at the back. So if you weren't here last week, please feel free to take a wooden bunny rabbit as your kind of little memento to remind you of Easter. And I have a chocolate bunny rabbit that was given to me by my downstairs neighbour. Carl's eyes are popping out of his head. This was given to me by my downstairs neighbour who said, I could quite happily sit and eat all of this bunny rabbit, but I expect you've got children in your church 
who would love it. Well, I'm sure I have got children in my church who would love it. I think I've also got grown-ups in my church who would love it. So we'll save that till the end of the service. I'll put it on the counter and we can smash that up and share it as a gift from, from my downstairs neighbour. So that's a really kind thing that she's done for us. So great things that can make us cheerful, sad things that can perhaps make us feel a bit discouraged. But we know that in all of it, good and bad, happy and sad, God in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit is with us. So we're going to sing a song that kind of picks up on that. Does anybody know this song um, for the joys and for the sorrows? Anybody recognize it? Nancy, me, and the choir have been learning it. That's fine. It's just sometimes useful to have an idea. Hopefully, by the time you get to the end of it, you'll sort of pick it up. If you don't, it doesn't matter. You can just look at the words if you can't actually quite get the tune. Paul will play it over for us, and um, perhaps we'll just stay sat down if we're not too confident about singing it, because I think that helps. Thanks, Paul.
Our first reading today is taken from Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 to 23. The people began to complain to the Lord about their troubles. When the Lord heard them, he was angry and sent fire on the people. It burnt among them and destroyed one end of the camp. The people cried out to Moses for help. He prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the place was named Taborah because the Lord had because there the fire of the Lord burnt among them. There were some foreigners travelling with the Israelites. They had a strong craving for meat, and even the Israelites themselves began to complain. If only we could have some meat. In Egypt we used to eat all the fish we wanted, and it cost us nothing. Remember the cucumbers, the watermelons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic we had. But now our strength is gone. There is nothing at all to eat. Nothing but this manna day after day. Manna was like small seeds, whitish-yellow in colour. It fell on the camp at night along with the dew. The next morning, the people would go round and gather it, grind it or pound it into flour, and then boil it and make it into flat cakes. It tasted like bread baked with olive oil. When Moses heard all the people complaining as they stood about in groups at the entrances in their tents, he was distressed because the Lord was angry with them. And he said to the Lord, Why have you treated me so badly? Why are you displeased with me? Why have you given me the responsibility for all these people? I didn't create them or bring them to birth. Why should you ask me to act like a nurse and carry them in my arms like babies all the way to the land you promised to their ancestors? Where could I get enough meat for all these people? They keep whining and asking for meat. I can't be responsible for all these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, take pity on me and kill me, so I won't have to endure your cruelty any longer. The Lord said to Moses, Assemble 70 respected men who are recognized as leaders of the people. Bring them to me at the tent of my presence and tell them to stand there beside you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the spirit I have given you and give it to them. Then they can help you to bear the responsibility for these people and you will not have to bear it alone. Now tell the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. The Lord has heard you whining and saying that you wish you had some meat and that you had been better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will have it to eat. You will have to eat it not just for one or two days or five or ten or even twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your ears and you are sick of it. This will happen because you have rejected the Lord who is here among you and have complained to him that you should never have left Egypt. Moses said to the Lord, Here I am leading 600,000 people and you you say that you will give them enough meat for a month? Could enough cattle and sheep be killed to satisfy them? Are all the fish in the sea enough for them? Is, is there a limit to my power? The Lord answered. You will soon see whether I have said what will happen or not. Second reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 23. It was faith that made the parents of Moses hide him for three months after he was born. They saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's order. It was faith that made Moses, when he had grown up, refuse to be called the son of the king's daughter. He preferred to suffer with God's people rather than to enjoy sin for a little while. He reckoned that to suffer scorn for the Messiah was worth far more than all the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes on the future reward. 
It was faith that made Moses leave Egypt without being afraid of the king's anger. As though he saw the invisible hand of the invisible God, as though he saw the invisible God, he refused to turn back. It was faith that made him establish the Passover and order the blood to be sprinkled on doors so that the angel of death would not kill the firstborns, the firstborn of the Israelites. It was faith that made the Israelites able to cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do it, the water swallowed them up. If you have a really, really good memory, you may recall that the last sermon I preached before my sick leave began was based on the story of the call of Moses, the beginning of a huge adventure that we know as the Exodus, and a story beloved of liberation theologians who identify their own oppressed people with the Hebrews in Egypt. I may or may not, I didn't check, have noted that I have a bit of a hesitancy over some liberation readings of the stories because they risk casting a rosy glow over the whole narrative and miss the opportunity to reflect on some of the less lovely parts of the story. At the start of Lent, I challenged myself and anybody who was brave enough to join in to read through the whole of Exodus and Numbers, which is a substantial chunk of the Old Testament, And it isn't always easy to make sense of, let alone reflect on. But it does offer us a deeper, more thoroughgoing insight into the story of the Hebrew people as they left Egypt and began to work out what it meant for them to live as an independent nation of believers in God. The God of Abraham and Sarah. The God of Isaac and Rebekah. The God of Jacob and Leah, Rachel, Bilhah and Zilpah and so on. It isn't always the most engaging or edifying read, but that is precisely why it's an important read. Because our own stories, for the most part, are pretty mundane and ordinary. Our own growth and development is sporadic, and our propensity to foul things up, as one person describes sin, and the reality of our own limitations are all too real. Perhaps if we read and reflect on these stories, they have a lot to say to us. And perhaps to our surprise, they may prove encouraging and affirming for our own ongoing lives, both inside and outside of church. 
as we, want, as we reflect on the story, I want to be very clear what I'm not trying to do here. In this story, we have a very clearly identified national leader, Moses, whose rule is effectively autocratic. Of course, we choose to read that as theocratic because he operates under the authority of God, but at an earthly level, he is an autocratic leader. And he has a govern, he's governing a nation or ruling a nation or leading a nation of around 600,000 men aged between 20 and 50. We know that from the censuses which are recorded in numbers. Plus older men and younger boys, women and children. There isn't any direct comparison that we can draw either between the nations of which we're part or the organisations we work in or to which we belong. And specifically, you can't draw a direct parallel to Hillhead Baptist Church. I, as minister, am not cast in the role of Moses. And trust me, all of us can be very grateful for that. And neither are you cast in the role of the Hebrew people. I'm not standing here as some kind of bossy person saying, this is how it is, you bad, me good, or anything like that. Actually, in both Moses and in the people, we can see glimpses of ourselves as individuals, as people who work in schools or offices, hospitals or shops, as part of families, as members of community, and specifically as members of this community of believers in Jesus, learning what that means for us. That's really important, because when I speak about Moses, I'm not speaking simply to myself, and definitely not of myself, but to and of all of us. And when I'm referring to the people, I'm not pointing a finger at any individuals or groups any more than I'm recognising my own foibles, faults and failings. That'll teach me to try to alliterate, won't it? The thing to keep in mind is that each one of us is both Moses and the people, the Hebrews. Nobody is exclusively and demonstrably one or the other. And everybody, everybody has their part to play in our own ongoing story. The opening verses of Numbers, Numbers 11, record two of the many occasions in the story where the people vocalise their disappointment and frustration. Having begun the march from Egypt and arriving at the shore of the Red Sea, the people look and see their former oppressors are pursuing them. And they cry out against Moses in a mixture of fear and disappointment. Why have you done this to us? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Now we're going to die in the desert. A few days later, having crossed the river or the sea and made a camp, they discover the water is bitter. And they, they say to Moses, well, well, what are we going to drink then? And then as the journey carries on, they recall all the wonderful food they had in Egypt. Watermelons, cucumbers, garlic, fish. And now what happens? We're going to die of hunger. And they get tired of the manna and they demand meat instead. Compressed into a fairly short account, we see a repeated pattern of disappointment, doubt, and questioning. Life isn't easy. The vision that inspired them to pack up and leave Egypt starts to fade. 
My mother has a saying, I'm sure other people's mothers have it as well, or fathers, distance lends enchantment to the view. They think back to Egypt and they think how wonderful it was there because they've kind of forgotten stuff. And their disappointment in the present turns into disillusionment and negativity. There's nothing wrong with being disappointed. I think, if we're honest, that to some degree, disappointment is inevitable. We let each other down. Things don't work out as we hope. That's just part of life. But the challenge is what to do with that disappointment. For the Hebrew people, it seems to result in a lot of negativity. How easily it seems that they blame Moses for what's happened. Well, you did this to us. And how quickly they forget the faithfulness of God in supplying their needs. They begin to grumble even before they cross the Red Sea. And this grumbling continues to happen every few days or weeks afterwards. Bitterness, (coughs) anger, blaming. These are pernicious and destructive. Not just of Moses as he does his best, bless him. But of the community as it is transformed by these death-dealing attitudes. There's a kind of corporate spirit of negativity and and nastiness. So my first reflection arises from putting myself amongst those people and thinking, how do I react to disappointment? What feelings and attitudes rise up within me most naturally? And how do those attitudes shape my response to my disappointments? But I can also place myself as one among the people and think about their shared disappointment and how I might respond to that. How do I allow, sorry, do I allow negatives to overflow and undermine the more positive outlook of others? Am I that miserable what's it that just always sees what's going wrong? Do I resort to criticism or blame? Or do I refer to the good old days? Do I respond to every challenge as, well, I told you that was what was going to happen? Or when somebody comes up with a good solution, I say, oh, yeah, but have you thought about? And what about each of us? What kind of attitudes and reactions most naturally arise with us when together we find disappointment? And let's face it, we've had some disappointments as a community together over the years. Do we more naturally go negative? Do we more naturally go positive? Perhaps we can take some time now or later to think about that. Perhaps we can ponder how our own natural tendencies have the potential to prevent us as individuals and as a community from moving forward in the promises and plans that God has for us. I think I'd like to suggest that disappointment is inevitable But disillusionment, at least that born of negativity, is optional. It's not just the people who experience disappointment. Moses does too. 
if we read the whole story closely, Moses spends an awful lot of time pleading with an angry God not to smite these stiff-necked people who, despite repeated supernatural expressions of God's provision, go on repeating these cycles of disappointment, disillusionment, grumbling and rebelling. Moses seems to spend an awful lot of time staying God's hand about these people. And Moses, at one point, spends a long time up a mountain with God. And I suspect for Moses, this was an amazing time. And when he comes down the mountain, he hears the sound of singing. And he discovers that in his absence, a new religion has emerged, centered on a golden calf. And when he challenges his own brother Aaron about it, he says, well, you know what happened? The people just threw their gold into the fire and whoosh, out popped the golden calf. All right. The challenges, the disappointments and tensions that Moses faced are twofold. He's got challenges and disappointments between him and the people and also between him and God. And it all becomes too much. It's overwhelming. And in Numbers 11, we hear him saying this to God. This is uh, the NRSV translation of it. I'm not able to carry all these people alone for they're too heavy for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, put me to death at once. If I have found favour in your sight, do not let them see my misery. This intense sense of isolation, failure, abandonment and loss of hope is perhaps one we recognise more in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. It's all too much. I'm worn out. I'm on my own. They're all against me. Let me die now. This is shocking stuff. Sadly, it probably isn't because we've heard the story so much, but it is seriously shocking stuff. And in our own time, we do see the equivalents. There are many, many ministers who burn out or crash and burn. There are high suicide rates among doctors and clergy and other professionals. The pressures to deliver while simultaneously handling the expectations of those in authority, can become too heavy. Cracks appear, tempers fray, health is compromised, and everyone, everyone loses out. As I read the story, I found myself wondering what it was about Moses that allowed him to get into that place. What aspects of his character and personality contributed to how he felt? And also, what aspects of the culture may have been part of that? What expectations were put upon him, or did he feel were put upon him? Because that's the way we do things around here, or that's what you do if you're in that role. Did Moses try to do everything himself because he was arrogant? Or was it that he felt the pressure of other people's expectations? Did he find it difficult to say no? Or did he find that he didn't have the ability to trust other people to do it well enough? You know, that kind of, well, I'll do it because then I know it's right. Was Moses insecure, suffering from what is often referred to as imposter syndrome, expecting to be found out as a fraud or a failure? Or was he just so busy getting on with it that there was no time to stop and think, is there a better way of doing this? What about me? 
And what about us? In our own roles, within our families, in our work, in any voluntary stuff we do, or wherever it might be. Do we risk burning out because our personalities or the culture in which we work have become oppressive or unhealthy? Can we break out of cycles that just wear us down as individuals or communities? The solution for Moses appears both in Exodus, where it's put in the the mouth of his father-in-law Jethro, and in Numbers, where it's directly in the mouth of God, and he's told to share out the load. Seventy leaders are chosen and appointed to act on everyday matters. That's still a huge responsibility for them and for Moses, but now it's more manageable. And then there are the priests centred on the family of Aaron, whose sole responsibility is to look after the spiritual life of the people. This high-level functional delegation probably seems quite sensible and obvious to us. But if we dig deeper into the story, we find a lot more about sharing out the workload and the responsibilities for the nation. The detailed description of the making of the tabernacle identifies two craftsmen chosen for their specific skills and notes that others worked alongside them, learning the craft, playing their part. Both women and men, whether it was weaving or carving, tanning or fabricating, lots and lots of people did a little bit each. And once the tabernacle was complete, there's an incredibly detailed procedure for its assembly, dismantling, transport, and reassembly. And within that, there are very clear roles allocated to groups of men. Some were to carry the Ark of the Covenant and the other officially sacred items. Others might be charged with carrying the tent pegs, which were vital because if you didn't have the tent pegs, the whole thing would collapse or blow away. Everybody had a role, and nobody was to consider themselves higher or lower because of what that role was. Everybody was equally important. And there's a lovely aside to this story. The people decide for themselves, wouldn't it be a good idea if we made some carts to carry the heavy things? So they go off and make these carts, and they bring them to Moses. They say, look, Moses, we've made you some carts. Moses kind of wants to get it right with God, so he he goes off and has a word with God, and God says, well, apart from these super-duper holy things, everything else can be put on the carts. I just love it. This is the kind of thing that can happen if you let go of control and let other people have a go. If we learn to empower and encourage each other, this can happen. We won't always get it right, but it's a wonderful story. But what does it say to me and what does it say to us if we put ourselves in that place of Moses? Do we risk burnout or worse, however justified it may seem, because we take on too much or we fail to delegate or share out tasks and responsibilities? And also, what might we miss out on because we hold on too tightly for things for whatever reason?
whose gifts might not be tapped, whose skills are undiscovered, what potential is undeveloped, what innovations or ideas do we miss out on because we just keep on doing too much ourselves? Or what if we put ourselves in the place of the people? What gifts and skills have we got to offer that actually aren't being used at the moment? What potential lies dormant within us, just waiting for an opportunity to find expression? What new ideas or imaginative solutions might emerge if we were to get more involved? And whilst for me, the primary context in which I'm reflecting is church, and I would hope it's an important one for you too, it's true of all areas of life, home, school, college, work, club, society, whatever it is. Are there occasions when we are like Moses, overworked, overtired, and near breaking point? And are there times also when we are those people with gifts and skills, potential and possibilities, just waiting to find expression. Disappointment in our own limitations, I think, is probably inevitable sometimes. Disillusionment, if not entirely optional, can be avoided or at least reduced. Delegation and decentralization are certainly possible, and I believe that they are healthy and hopeful. I want to finish this sermon or reflection or whatever it is today by turning to a line from the New Testament reading in the NRSV translation, subtly different from uh, what Beth read for us, but it's the same intent. In the NRSV, the second half of Hebrews 11:27 says this of Moses. He persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. And that seems to me to sum it all up and root it back where it belongs in our faith in the Christ whom we can't see and yet who we trust. I used to know a lay preacher who would talk a lot about perseverance or, as she actually put it, the need to keep on keeping on. Moses and the Hebrew people didn't get it all sorted. None of the generation that left Egypt entered the land that had been promised to them, with the exception of Joshua. But they kept on going through the ups and downs, through the struggles and the failures, to some degree at least, trusting that God was ultimately faithful. And that's part of what they were learning. But this is the hope that we trust in. This is the promise that enables us to keep on keeping on. That in Christ, sin and death are defeated. That's what Easter is all about. And that the journey we walk individually and collectively goes on through those joys and sorrows, through the disappointments, even occasional despair, as we step nearer to the fulfilment of God's kingdom of shalom. Sometimes we're Moses, sometimes we're the people. But we are all in it together. Whether we're old or young, whether we we feel we have a lot to offer or not, we're all important. 
And this hymn that we're going to sing seems to express much of what this is about in practice. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. And then there's the catch. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. It's a two-way street. We're all in this together. We stand if we're able as we sing. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Here we are again, Lord, a few days after we celebrated in Easter the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for our salvation. He was and is and will always be the ultimate answer to our prayers for help in ages past and ages yet to come. And yet, and yet, here we bow our heads and ask yet again that you strengthen us, comfort us, renew our hopes, (coughs) placate our fears, solve our problems. Pretty much the same prayers and cries for help as uttered by our believer brothers and sisters down the long ages. 
Time after time you reassure us. I will always be with you. I will always help you. And time and time again we complain when the help you give is not in the exact form we desire. At present we live in what the ancient Chinese called interesting times, or in other words, times of conflict. But there is a difference now. Our age is a selfish one which demands instant gratification in all things. We ask you for aid, whether it be emotional or financial or physical or personal or global, and grumble when it does not happen in a crack of CGI lightning, like in a Hollywood film. Oh dear, we say, Amazon can give delivery in 24 hours. Why can't you, the creator of all things? This some of us cry like petulant children. We are short-sighted and cannot see the long view that your help comes in a variety of ways and usually by the hands of friends, known and unknown. As a rule, and we applaud it, we pray selflessly for the good of all. In this place we take particular serious care in looking after those in our congregation who are infirm or troubled, and we try to extend that loving concern out into the greater community in such programmes as our Friday meetings. In all this, we do the work of your hands and heart, as we should. And yet there are many among us with fears and sorrows and weaknesses and bitter regrets they do not share, they do not voice. Perhaps in the night they will whisper them to you, We pride ourselves in joining in openly in the caring for others. But sadly, sometimes, in respect of ourselves, we do not stretch out a hand to those beside us here as we pray together, and we do not whisper to them, I need help. For they, our companions, are your instruments of solace and relief. They are God in our presence. Now why do some of us do this or don't do this? Why this failure? Sometimes it is pride. I need to be a carer, not the one cared for. Sometimes shame. I cannot admit my need, that I am no longer in control that I need help. Lord, in your mercy, we pray, help us to let go of unnecessary pride and shame. Help us, we pray, to grasp your hands in the hands of our fellow believers and be comforted and helped. I sometimes think that in response to our prayers, It may be you say, oh dear, my troubled children, have you so soon forgotten 
a week after Easter, for all that you need, I gave you Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray, to go forward in hope with a heartfelt response. Yes, Lord. Lord, I am weak and fearful for myself and for my world. But I know for all the courage I need, for all the strength I need, for all the love and guidance I need, for all of this, yes, yes, I have Jesus. Yes, I have Jesus. Hallelujah, I have Jesus. God be praised, we have Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, sometimes we think that it would be easier if you asked us for difficult things. Easier if you asked us to walk on nails or through fire. But you just ask us to give us yourselves, ourselves. And part of that is the giving of our money. Money that we have worked hard for or money that we have drawn from our savings. Money that we give freely. 
May that never become an easy option for us. May it always be a genuine gift to help spread the story of Jesus, the good news of hope that he brings in this community and beyond. Amen. And as we gather around the Lord's table, we join together in singing hymn number 436. Here, O my Lord, I see you face to face. around the table of the Lord. We meet to break bread, to drink wine, and to remember. To remember that this is a story of flawed and failing people 
invited to participate in the fulfillment of a promise. To remember that this is a story of people for whom disappointment led to disloyalty, denial and doubt. To remember that this is not just a story, but the story. The story of death defeated. The story of sin forgiven. The story of hope renewed. The story of God's eternal promise that in Christ is made anew. So come. Come if you are disappointed in yourself, in the church, in God. Come if you have been disloyal to yourself, to the church, to God. Come if you have denied your own worth, the worth of others, the truth of God. Come if you have doubted that you are loved, that the church is for you, that God really, really loves you. For here, in bread broken and wine poured, we remember, we reconnect, we renew. We remember, reconnect, and renew the promise and the hope to journey on together with God in the footsteps of Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul recorded the story. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us follow the example of Jesus and offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Let's pray. God of the ancients, who supplied the needs of your people Israel, 
as they travelled and travailed to become a nation. We recall how you led them from physical captivity to literal liberty. God of all times, who gives us in this memorial rite symbolic nourishment for our own journey and journeying, we thank you for the bread and wine that we will share, asking only that in so doing our sense of unity in Christ is strengthened and our determination to keep on keeping on is renewed. Amen. Jesus took the loaf and he broke it and he shared it with his friends. Those who would be disloyal, those who would deny, those who would doubt. He knew that they would all let him down, yet still he chose to share with them. So let's not worry too much about the letting down that we've done. Let's hear the invitation of Jesus to eat and to remember. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This covenant that we renew every time we share in bread and wine. Every time it is ever shared, whether here or elsewhere. Every time it has been shared, and every time in the future yet to come. And so we will retain our glasses as we receive them in order that we might drink together, symbolising our oneness as a people following Jesus the best we can, but also recognising our part within a much bigger story that continues through time. So knowing that we are loved by God, knowing that we are saved through Christ, knowing that the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our strength. We drink in gratitude and faith. Receiving us, you overcome our disloyalty. Restoring us, you nullify our denial. Renewing us, you accept our doubts. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you give us life. Glory be to you, O Christ. Amen.
As we step out from this place into the unknown week that lies ahead of us, may we be blessed with hopeful and courageous hearts to meet the challenges it brings. And may we grow in faith and in grace as we journey onwards now and always. Thank you.